Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy to welcome you back on campus, and thank you for watching online. Those of you who share the services each week with your family and friends, thank you for doing that. We're excited about this time of the year moving into the Super Bowl for churches, and that's the Easter season. And you have a great opportunity to reach people that you won't get that same opportunity till Christmas time, so we certainly want to take advantage of it, try to invite everyone we possibly can to be a part of one of the services or to watch the services online. Now, we're in a series called Proof, and in this series, we're examining in the Gospel of John the seven uh, undeniable proofs that John sets forth to establish the fact that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God. And these proofs are simply miracles that Jesus performed to distinguish him and set him apart from anyone else of his day, to say beyond any shadow of a doubt, no one could do the things that Jesus does except God be with him. In fact, Jesus Christ changed things everywhere he went. He changed people everywhere he went. He just didn't have a word. He was the word. John 1 said, in the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. Jesus is God's first word. Jesus is God's full word. He is God's final word. There's no other word outside of Jesus uh, when it comes to understanding God. And so in this Gospel of John, he sets out these seven proofs. And this morning, we're going to examine a powerful proof that John was an eyewitness to, and that was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. If you have a Bible, look with me in John 11. Let's begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, he's referring to this exuberant act of worship that Mark recorded in Mark chapter 14, where she had this little alabaster box full of perfume, and she was so overwhelmed with her love for her Savior that she broke, broke open that little uh, 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 perfume, uh, anointed the head of our Lord, washing his feet, and so it was just an, ex an extravagant expression of worship. In fact, when you read the record, and let me just kind of take a sidebar with you because this is interesting. When Judas was there and he saw what she did, she broke open that expensive perfume and she offered it upon Jesus. Judas said, what a waste. We could have sold that and given that money to the poor, as though he really cared about the poor. But he said what she did for Jesus was a waste. Mary looks at what she did for Jesus and said, it's not a waste, it's worship. Now, it's interesting because the, the word worship comes from the idea of worth-ship, worth-ship. Whatever you value, whatever you see of worth, you tend to worship. And so when you see Jesus of value, you see him of great worth, naturally there is worship. So notice the contrast between Judas and Mary. Judas looks at Jesus and says, he's not worth it, it's a waste. Mary looks at Jesus and said, he's worth it. It's the best I have. I'm going to worship. You see that there? And so he's just reminding us, this is the house that happened in. This is the setting. These are the people <laughs> that that all happened in. And then notice now, the, the Bible said in verse 3, the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus. Here's what they said. Lord, the one you love is sick, speaking of their brother Lazarus. 
And when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And then he tells us, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary, and he loved Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's now go back to Judea. I'll leave off reading, but I'll refer to the rest of the narrative before we go home today. But it's interesting that the chapter opens. It opens with what I'm calling a problem that is declared. I mean, the chapter just opens with the fact that the Bible says Lazarus is sick. Now, now let me stop long enough to say Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. This home in Bethany that belonged to Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha was a home Jesus frequented. As far as we know, Jesus didn't own his own home during his itinerant ministry, so he would often stay in the homes or places of other people, and in this home, this was the most frequent place that Jesus would go, and in this home, there lived three people that he's close to, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. In fact, oftentimes, you would read about them. In fact, on many occasions, Jesus would sit in their living room, and you remember one time, Martha, she was the worry ward of the group. She was, the Bible says, kind of hustling around the kitchen trying to find something for Jesus to eat, and Mary is just in there sitting at his feet. Lazarus is in there as well. You remember, and Martha confronts him and says, Jesus, will you tell my sister to get up and help me? Now, I don't know how many of you stressed sisters out there that when you're stressed and your sister is, and how frustrating that could be. But that was an experience that the Bible records of Martha trying to get something for Jesus to eat, stressing about it, and, and Mary just sitting at his feet, enjoying his company. And Jesus would often go to their home. But I don't want you to miss that because the context is so important because this is a home Jesus frequented and there's a problem in this house. Did you know you can have a problem in a house that Jesus frequents? Did you know you can have a problem in a house where Jesus often visits? Did you know you can be a friend of Jesus and sing what a friend we have in Jesus and still have problems? I mean, Lazarus was probably one of the best friends Jesus had in his earthly ministry. He's a friend of Jesus, and the Bible says he has a sickness that unless God intervenes, he'll die. Somebody says, well, I thought if you knew Jesus and you walked with him, you're just healthy, wealthy, and wise, and you never have problems. Well, not according to the Bible. I mean, that's an interesting theory, but it doesn't square with Scripture. Some of the some of the best Christian people that I know are some of the people that have walked through some of the deepest valleys and endured some of the toughest times. I told you before, you don't know how strong your faith is till your faith gets tested. And here was a family that loved Jesus dearly. By the way, this was a home full of worship. Remember, she broke the alabaster jar and anointed his head. They worshiped. So put it together. Here's a problem in a house Jesus frequents. Here's a problem among the friends of Jesus. Here's a problem among the worshipers of Jesus. I mean, you can't get more committed people than Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They love Jesus, and yet here's this man who's sick. He has a terminal illness, and he will die if Jesus doesn't intervene. I told you last weekend, when you understand the origin of illness in our world, you realize God did not create a world with sickness in it. Sickness, all forms of sickness is a result of original sin. In Genesis 3, you see the entrance of sin, and as a result of sin, we become infected with uh, illness. Our bodies are no longer eternal. These bodies are temporal. Now, our spirit and soul is eternal, but these bodies are temporal. 
These bodies are subjected and, and they are prone to illness. And one day, uh, these bodies will return to the earth. As Solomon said, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. But you and I are temporal beings. We, we are, are, we're, we're immortal beings in temporal bodies, put it that way. So our bodies are subject to, to sick, and sometimes uh, the sickness is just a result of we're in a, a fallen world, and uh, we're subject to being ill. This just is what it is, and sometimes sickness just happens. It happens as a result of original sin. I said sometimes last weekend also, sickness can be connected to particular sin, meaning that you can abuse your body, you can abuse your body and you can ignore what the doctor is telling you and ignore the instructions of a physician and bring some illness on yourself. Sometimes that happens. But this illness that Lazarus had was different because Jesus said, this is going on so that God would be glorified. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God would be glorified through a terminal illness? Well, let's understand the, the, the terminology of what glory means. It's, it's kind of Christianese to a lot of people. Explain that. When you see the word glory, you, you could define the word glory in the Bible this way. Everything that God is, you could call that glory. So when uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, unto him be glory in the church, that expression means let everything that God is be reflected in his church. That's why the church is the body of Christ. It's to do what he did. So when a church brings God glory, what that means is a church is being a reflection of who he is. Now back to this story. He's saying that this sickness is happening to Lazarus because everything that I am is going to be reflected through his life. God is going to be glorified. People are going to be drawn to Jesus. So that was, the, that was kind of the understanding. That was the big picture and looking back at it now, we kind of see how that worked out. But understand, these people were living this in real time. These people were stepping through this not knowing how it was going to come out. These people were walking by faith, not by sight. We have the ability of hindsight. We look back at the story and go, oh, we know how that's going to come. He's going to call Lazarus back. Yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to end great. They didn't know how that was going to work out. I mean, if we could fast forward our lives and we could suddenly end up in heaven and see how all this, we'd be fine too. <laughs> we would know it's going to end well. We ain't there yet. We're still walking through. It's not the sweet by and by that's giving me heartache. It's the nasty now and now. <laughs> and so that's the life they were living. That's the path they were walking. That was the struggle they were facing is their brother who is a friend of Jesus living in the house that Jesus frequents, a worshiper of Jesus, and he's dying. And so you see there's this problem in this house. And I'm telling you this morning, if you love Jesus and you welcome him into your home, you have scriptures on the wall and you worship him, you're here today and you're watching online, you're a part of worshiping him, that will not listen. It will not exempt you from problems. Jesus said all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer some persecution. He said, in this world, you're going to have some tribulation. He just said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But let's go back to what he said. You're going to have some tribulation. Isaiah said, hey, no weapon formed against you will, will, will prosper. But he didn't say there wouldn't be weapons formed against you that might scare you. What's my point? My point is no one is exempt from heartache or heartbreak or loss or sickness. And so here they are with this problem in their house. And so what do they do? They do what anybody would do. They send for Jesus. 
We call that prayer. I mean, and, and, and think about this. They, they, they had to be thinking, well, you know, Jesus sat in our living room and, and told us about the 5,000 that he fed, and, and he doesn't really know them, any of them in the crowd. He just sees them as a huge crowd of people. We, we don't know that he ever met anyone personally or interacted with them. He certainly didn't go to their house and hang out, and they didn't feed him or they didn't anoint him with oil, and yet he fed them. Then they, they heard that story of, remember the, of, of the water to wine? Remember that story? They're at the wedding. They were obviously friends. And, and Mary kind of puts Jesus on the spot and says, you got to save this wedding. It's going to be an embarrassment to the families. They, they're out of wine. That was a big old social faux pas back in that day. And Jesus saves the wedding. Water to wine. And I'm sure Mary and Martha and Lazarus are sitting around saying, look, he did that for people that he barely knew. He just went to their wedding and saved their wedding. And I'm sure one of them said, well, remember that nobleman? We heard him talk about the nobleman whose son was dying. And the nobleman said, Jesus, if you don't intervene, my son will die. And Jesus didn't even show up. He healed him from long distance. He said, you go home, your son as well. I'm sure Mary said to Martha, wow, he did. He didn't even have to come. He healed him from long distance. And he didn't even know. We don't even know the nobleman's name. Then I'm sure Lazarus said, yeah, and I remember I remember the pool of Bethesda when the man was lame for 38 years and Jesus walks up on a complete stranger and touches and heals his body. And I'm sure Mary said, yeah, and do y'all remember him talking about the man blind at the steps of the temple? He didn't know that guy at all. Yet he touched his eyes. He healed him. And so with all those stories and all those stories could be summarized this way. Jesus really didn't have a personal relationship with any of those people. They, they weren't even people you would describe as his friends, and you surely wouldn't describe them as worshipers. And yet he healed them. He fed them. He cared for them. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus had to be sitting here thinking, surely <laughs> he'll help us. He's helped people he hardly knows. We've had him in our home. We worshiped him. Mary would have said, I spent a lot of money just worshiping him. Martha said, I spent some time in the kitchen making sure he had something to eat. Surely, surely he would come. And yet the Bible says Lazarus dies. Hearing the assurance from his sisters that Jesus will come. Wow. It's a compelling moment in Scripture. It's one that a lot of us have walked through in life. For you're faced with something that if something doesn't happen miraculously, you know what the inevitable outcome will be. You have a loved one and they have a terminal illness, and so you pray. Hundreds pray, thousands pray. And what's interesting about it was is when they sin for Jesus, that shows you their faith. Mary and Martha didn't lack for faith. They had faith because they wouldn't have sent for Jesus if they didn't have faith. You don't pray if you don't have faith. I mean, when you pray, you're demonstrating faith. Are you just having some kind of inner monologue? And I mean, when you pray to God, that's faith. They sent for Jesus. They had faith. And not only they had faith, they believed he could respond. They'd seen him do it before. And they knew the situation was desperate. Have you ever been in that situation in your life? When you have tried everything to fix the problem, you've prayed, listen, you've done everything humanly speaking you can do, and now if God doesn't move, 
we're not going to have a good outcome. That's where they were. And what's astonishing about it is you see the second point. You see the provision delayed. He doesn't come. He doesn't come. Did you see that? Don't you know how shocked they must have been? He doesn't show. He's been in our house. We're his friends. We were. What do you mean he doesn't show? He doesn't come. Lazarus dies. One of the hardest things in life to navigate through, and I'm living it so I can speak from personal experience, is this simple fact. It's not always do you have enough faith to be healed as much as it may be do you have enough faith not to be healed. Now, I know God can heal. I know he could have healed Cindy Jean, my wife, for those of you that don't know. I know he could have. We prayed that he would. Best doctors in the world took care of her. Thousands of people praying for that girl. She had faith to believe. I'm a pastor. I did everything you're supposed to do. Checked all the boxes. You know what the answer I got from heaven on May 31st of 2019? This guy just said, Bill, I'm not going to answer your prayer that way. It's not always do you have faith to be healed. Sometimes it's do you have enough faith not to be healed. This is a crossroads. This is where you get stretched. This is where life gets hard for a Christian. Because we know what we believe about God. We know what he's capable of doing. We've seen him do it. I believe he's a healer. I don't think there's anything too hard for him. But what do you do when you pray he would and you pray he would do it, and you check all the boxes, and you think, why wouldn't he? She's the best Christian I ever knew. She's a better Christian than me. I should be gone. She should be up here. Y'all would be a lot better off. I'm just simply suggesting to you that sometimes the hardest thing to hear from God is when he says, no. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, rather, when Paul was praying about the thorn in the flesh, remember? You know what God told him? Sorry, son, no. My grace is sufficient for you, but I'm not taking the thorn away. You remember the three Hebrew children in Daniel 3? Who Nebuchadnezzar the king said, renounce your faith, recant your faith, or you go into the furnace and you'll die. And I love their response in verse 17. They said, our God is able. He's a miracle worker. He's a problem solver. He's a sin forgiver. He's a burden lifter. There's nothing too hard for our God. Our God is able, king, to deliver us. But here's what they said. But if he doesn't, we still won't bow. We still won't burn. And God didn't keep them out of the fire. He went into the fire with them. What's my point? My point is, guys, when you hit the crossroads, you hit this crossroad in your life where your faith is stretched, your faith needs to be big enough to handle the but-if-he-doesn'ts of life. What if he doesn't? And I'm just saying, these girls were, man, they were, wow. You can imagine how they felt. I mean, you could imagine how, I mean, Lazarus dies and Jesus doesn't show. I've been in ministry long enough. My dad was a pastor, so I've been around this world all my life. And let me tell you something. You have people in your world that you, you need to respond to, 
or you're going to pay a price if you don't. You need to go or send somebody that looks like you, <laughs> you know? Here's what's interesting about it is Jesus doesn't show. Not only does he show, he didn't even send one of the boys. He didn't even send one that looked like him. And, and, and what's even more astonishing is they knew how close he was. He was in Jerusalem, and they're in Bethany. Listen, two miles. That's about here to Cabela's. <laughs> so it wasn't like it's too far away. Not only that, they knew what he was doing. You know what he was doing? You ready for this? Nothing. He's resting. He's chilling. He's sitting by the pool, maybe. I mean, he had been ministering. He had been in the temple. He was tired. He was exhausted. He deserved a break. But here he was doing nothing. I mean, you could have said, well, he's busy. He's doing this. He's got this going. He's, you know, but no, none of that. He's two miles away. He's not doing anything. His best friend is dying unless he intervenes, and he doesn't intervene. Holy smoke. I mean, I do apologetics, you know, in defense of the faith. I can tell you, every time I come up on this one, I go, oh, Jesus, you look bad right here. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how I can make you look good here. And you know those apostles were thinking, oh, Jesus, man, are you kidding me? Wow, we're not going, and you're not going, and we're not even responding. And the only thing you told them is, he's not going to die. Jesus, he died. You say, well, how do you square that? We understand we look at death very differently than God. We see death like the Apostle Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, where he said death is an enemy, the last enemy that will be destroyed. God doesn't look at death that way. He sees death in the 126th Psalm where he says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We say death is an enemy. He says it's precious. They say Lazarus is dying. Jesus says, no, he's not. It's precious to Jesus because it means one of his kids are going home. They're being moved out of this land of sickness and sorrow and suffering, and they're going into the presence of their heavenly father forevermore. But we look at it as an enemy. It takes our loved ones from us. It separates their presence from our lives, and we'll never have them this side of eternity again. It's a cold word, the word death. The word just means separation. Separation of our loved ones from us, but more than that, it's the separation of the spirit and soul from the body. It's a cold, hard word. And yet God views it differently. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, it's simply stepping from the temporal into the eternal, absent from the body, present with the Lord. For a child of God is to say good night down here and to say good morning up there. When Cindy closed her eyes that morning, when me and the kids are at her bedside, she opened them in the presence of her Savior. Now, I say it's an enemy. You know what Jesus says? That's precious. She's home. You'll see her again. But when you're in the middle of that, you don't always have that opinion. These girls are angry. You talk about twisted sisters. Here's two. And you know what's astonishing about this? Is <laughs> Jesus says, now we'll go. Now, how would you like to have been one of his apostles? Would you have gone? I'm not thinking I'm going. Not when I know I could have kept that from happening and I didn't happen, and not when I know I got two sisters that are downright, snow white, blazing bright, mad at me. 
I'm going to avoid that situation. I'm going to saturate their presence with my absence. I'm pulling on Jesus saying, let's don't go. Give them a little time. Give them a little time. And, and you know, I mean, Cindy and I are married 42 years. I've learned something about how men and women process anger. And let me tell you something, ladies, you'll agree with me. It takes you a little longer to get over something than it does us guys. I've told you before, two men can get mad at each other. We can get uh, just nose to nose, and we can get upset with one another. We can put it all on the table, tell each other the last 2%, <laughs> and all of a sudden, one guy will look at the other guy and say, are you hungry? Another guy will go, I'm kind of hungry. You want to get a burger? Yeah, let's get a burger. It's over. Isn't that right, guys? It's, we're done. We're done. We're done. We're not mad anymore. We're good. We're going to get a burger. Let me tell you my experience with a girl. You get nose-to-nose -nose with a guy or another girl, ain't nobody getting no lunch anytime soon. That is not happening. I, I think about the process of that anger, kind of like a, a, a jet engine when you turn off the power of the jet. You, you just... <laughs> Takes a little time. What's my point? Jesus walked right into that. And man, when you read it, they are mad. Let me tell you what ain't happening on this trip. Ain't nobody looking for perfume to anoint him. Nobody's humming around the kitchen trying to find him a sandwich. They're in his face. Read it. You know what they said? If you would have been here, our brother would not have died. And you know what? He doesn't deny that. You know what that says to me? This is wonderful. That says Jesus loves us enough for us to misunderstand him. He loves us enough, listen, for us to get mad at him. He loves us enough for us to be confused with him. He seldom explains himself because all he requires of us, trust me, they're upset, they're mad, I've been there. David said in the Psalms, he said, he has put my feet in a large room. One scholar says, God cuts you slack. I'm telling you, I'm glad he cut me some slack. I mean, I've been on the mountain on this experience, and I've been in the valley. I've handled this well, and I hadn't handled it very well. I've been all over the page. And God's let me get mad at him. He's let me be disappointed. Aren't you glad he loves you enough he just didn't reach out of heaven and mash you like a bug in the rug? You little ingrate, look what I've done for you. He could say that. I wouldn't blame him. I'd have killed me a long time ago if I was God. <laughs> but he loves me. I don't understand it. But he gives you some space. I'm talking to some people. You're in some space now he's given you. Some of you online. I talk to people every week who walked away. They hit a crossroad right where these people are, where the... For the provision was delayed, God didn't show. He didn't do what they thought he would do when he thought he would do it. And they said, you know what? I can't do this. Walk away from church, close the Bible. Don't pray. They're just in a space. And you know what? God loves you enough to let you have your space. But sooner or later, you know what he'll do? He'll leave the 90 and 9, and he'll come looking for you. He's not come looking angry like your mama used to with the switch. Get in this house like I told you. He'll come looking at you saying, child, I get it. 
I've allowed something to happen in your life is bitter, bigger than your ability to comprehend, and all I've asked you to do is trust me in it. You weren't ready to do it, so I've given you some space. And so he's given these girls some space to process why he allowed their brother to die when he could have prevented it from happening. He's given them some space. Then all of a sudden he looks at Mary and Martha and he says, girls, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me will never die. And he who believes in me, though he dies, he'll live again. And then he said, do you still believe that? With your broken heart? with your crushed soul, with your confused mind, do you still believe that? I mean, you look at verse 22, and I think it was with a broken heart. Mary looks at him and she said, even now, I believe. Boy, you got to get to that point. <laughs> it doesn't bring them back at that point. It doesn't make all the sense in the world. You won't connect all the dots, but you have to get to that point in your faith where you say, Lord, I still believe in you. I still know you love me more than I love me. I might not die for me, but you did. God, I trust you. <laughs> I know you've got a purpose and a plan. It wasn't my purpose and it wasn't my plan, but it's yours and yours is bigger than mine and better than mine. So God, I'm just going to trust even now. And then you see the last thought. I'm going to go home with this. You see a providence that's starting to be discerned. Providence comes from the word pro-video, God's ability to see ahead. We don't have that, but he does. And he begins to help them connect some dots. He goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and he does something really unique. He stands there, and he grieves over his friend. Grief is a healthy thing. Never apologize for grieving. Never apologize for shedding those tears. I think sometimes probably the depth of your grief is tied to the depth of your love for somebody. If you love them, you'll probably grieve over them a long time. And he stood outside the grave and he weeps. Shortest verse in the Bible. That was always my memory verse when I was in Sunday school. <laughs> my teacher would say, who has a memory verse? Okay, Bill, what is it? Jesus wept. Thank you, Billy. I can nail that one. But man, when you look at that context and you see what's going on there, he's grieving over a friend that he's lost. Now, I often wondered why he did that, knowing he's about to call him back. And I thought, well, why didn't he just call him back? Why did he sit there and grieve? And I thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe he wanted to know what we feel like when we lose somebody we love. You lose that friend, you lose that mom, you lose that dad, you lose the child, you lose a spouse. I thought maybe he wanted to know what that feels like. So he grieves over that person that he loved. And then I thought, well, he's God. Wouldn't he have already known that? Here's what I came to terms with. See if this helps you. I don't think he grieves at the tomb of Lazarus so that he would know how it feels. But I think he grieves so that we would know that he knows how it feels. You see the difference? That's why the writer said in Hebrews, we don't have a high priest who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was in all points tested as we are, yet he without sin. That means when you go to the cemetery, as we do from time to time, and you leave your flowers and you share some memories, knowing they're not there, 
knowing they're in heaven, but you still go. You go there with an assurance, and you go there with the peace that though you grieve in that place, you walk away with the hope of heaven. You know you're going to see him again. And Jesus does something astonishing at the grave of Lazarus. He calls out, Lazarus, come forth. I believe he had enough power. The reason he said Lazarus by name, if he had just said come forth, everybody since Adam would have walked out of their graves. He says, Lazarus, come forth. I've often thought when I've studied this and talked about it, can you imagine being Lazarus in heaven when that happened? <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, you're in heaven, you're in a perfect body, handsome and ripped for the first time in your life. That's how I think of heaven, so just go with me. And I mean, you're up there, you've seen loved ones and family, you see, you're, you're worshiping your God. Can you imagine? And all of a sudden, Lazarus come to the office, and you're like, what? You're going back. What? You've been recalled. Don't worry, you're going to come back eventually. So I get to die twice? Yeah, you're going to get to die twice. But I'm just saying, Lazarus walks out of his grave under the power of Jesus. Now, what's interesting is when you study the rest of Lazarus's life, Jesus takes him with him everywhere he goes. And the Bible says many people showed up, not for Jesus' sake, but to see Lazarus. They came for Lazarus, but they got Jesus. You know what was happening? He was being glorified through Lazarus. People were seeing Jesus through him. What's my point as I wrap all this up? My point is, folks, God has a purpose in everything. He's intentional. God loves you. He's merciful. I can stand here with my broken heart and tell you he's never failed. He's never failed. He can't fail. He can be trusted. Some of you that are still in that big space that are trying to navigate your disappointment with him, at some point I hope you'll see he's been there for you all the time. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. And all you have to do is do what the prodigal did that day and say, I'm tired of this. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm going home. And when you turn, you're going to find the embrace of your heavenly father who loves you more than you could imagine. He's been waiting for you this whole time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that never returns void. It always accomplishes purpose. And fathers, we've considered the fact that Lazarus was living proof that you are who you say you are and you can do what you say you can do. I pray for my friends who may be broken over different issues. Maybe not the loss of someone, maybe the loss of a job, the loss of a dream maybe a setback financially, maybe just something going on in their world that's so personal they can't really share it with their closest friend. But Lord, would you give them the assurance this morning that you know them and you know that, and there's nothing in the world that you cannot do. So Father, I pray at the end of the day when we pray, believing, we'll also be willing to accept your answer and to know you know what's best. You cannot fail to trust you in all things. And finally, Lord, for my friends today who may never have trusted you as Savior, may this be the moment where they just simply say, Lord Jesus, with all that I know about me, I trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart and forgive my sin and be a reality in me. This is the prayer that I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.